Long before the prophet Haggai's time, it was Moses. Moses, if you recall from Exodus 32, was Moses who came down the first time from Sinai after having received the law. And does anyone remember what he came down to, what he saw? Were the people fasting? Were they waiting in prayerful anticipation for a word from God to see their friend Moses? Had they been patiently waiting while Moses was there? No, they had not. They grew quickly impatient and and easily convinced Aaron to use their gold to make an idol, a golden calf. And Exodus 32 explains to us that when the people saw Moses was delayed in his coming down from the mountain, they used this molded calf to explain to Israel that this is your God. And specifically, the one that brought you out of the land of Egypt. It was, of course, made with an altar and burned with an offering of peace. Moses, upon seeing the calf and the people's dancing, he grew angry. And he broke the tablets containing God's law at the foot of the mountain. And after some verbal exchange with Aaron, what does Moses do next? He speaks. He says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he had charged them, saying, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from entrance to entrance throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. Verse 28 tells us, So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. They died. They were killed. In the passage before us this evening, Haggai chapter 2, the passage we just read, verses 10 through 19, we see the people of Haggai's day faced with a similar situation to those earlier Israelites. They too were sinful people who were seeing the painful consequences of their sinful behaviors. This was common in the Old Testament for God's punishment for sinful consequences to be made visible. They were very outward. They, They were made visible. When they disobeyed, they were punished, and everyone knew. With one commentator explaining this was the case, because under the terms of the covenant God made with Moses at Sinai, the consequences of their disobedience clearly showed in the agricultural bottom line. Deuteronomy 28 lays out these terms by way of agricultural and military blessing if they obeyed and served the Lord. And on the flip side, serious agricultural and military consequences if the people disobeyed. Well, by the the prophet Haggai's time, the Israelites had experienced the military consequences of their lengthy history of disobedience. And this culminated, if you recall, in 586 B.C. as they were exiled from the Promised Land. And again, going back to Deuteronomy 28, from verses 15 through 68, it's a a long chapter, but it's wonderful. And that we're told of blessings, but we're also told of numerous curses from God should the people disobey. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other, And there you shall serve other gods, we're told. God always making good on his promises does this as we know Jerusalem was destroyed. And where were the people taken? To a faraway land. 
It was only after serving in exile for 70 years because of their sins that the people finally returned to their homeland, but upon returning, still experienced the same old covenant curses in their agricultural form. So this evening, what I want us to see among, among many things is that the troubles experienced by God's people here in the text before us, by the exiles, their troubles did not bring them back to God. They experienced God's judgment in numerous ways, and yet they did not turn from their sin back to the Lord. One commentator summarized their lack of turning to God in a way that I imagine will resonate with many of you. It did with me. He wrote, People may want a solution for their pain, but they are not necessarily eager for a solution to their sin problem that underlies it. Yes, the people had been working and had not given up to that end. Outwardly, everything seemed fine. But oftentimes, when things on the outside appear hunky-dory, the inner being, one's heart, isn't always fine. It's not always the case. The people had grown tired in in their efforts to build back up the temple, and this caused their heart attitudes to grow weary as well. The outward work was ongoing, but being done at a snail's pace and with complaint. They refused to see their building of the temple as an outward reflection of commitment to the Lord, so they saw nothing wrong with a half-hearted attitude. So Haggai here does once again what we've examined him to do multiple times before, and that's to look upwards, consulting Almighty God for how best to motivate the people. Let's now ask for the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Our Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts, that it would open our minds to understand your word, to apply it to our lives, and to live it out before you and for your glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you to have your Bibles open. Haggai chapter 2, verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. The prophet Haggai speaking to the people three months after they've responded to the prophetic message in chapter 1, verse 15, and began the work of rebuilding the temple. We see that now. It's been three months. Fittingly, this date corresponds to the same time in which there's a second prophet added to the mix. Zechariah had begun, had begun his public ministry and spoke a message commanding the same exiles. And Zechariah 1, verse 3, to return to the Lord. So both he and Haggai are speaking to a people struggling to achieve a wholehearted response of repentance. Further here in verse 10 of chapter 2, we're told the word of the Lord came by or to Haggai. The Hebrew showing us El, Haggai, to Haggai. And this is important because rather than through Haggai has been the means previously... which would mean that he's the chief agent through whom God communicates, here the prophet is the lone recipient. So to him and not through him. When Haggai is the first and primary recipient, the message from God is directed to him rather than through him to an audience of someone or someones. And as the primary recipient of the word of the Lord, Haggai is given a command. Thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests concerning the law, 
saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, he asks, Will it then, will it become holy? But look what he does first. The beginning of verse 11, what's he tell us? He obeys the command to inquire of the priest. And so Haggai, what does he do about that? He seeks those who know the law. And in verse 12, we learn that Haggai is concerned about purity. So who naturally does he consult? Those who know the law best, the priests. Those of whom were the experts in the law. They were the authorized expounders of the Torah of God's law and whose ruling was widely accepted as authoritative. They taught the law and were the ones responsible for preparing and offering sacrifices upon the altar of the Lord. Haggai, knowing all of this, he consults them because the people looked up to them. They were the spiritual leaders amid the Jews, so he consults them, referencing something that the exiles were very familiar with. And he draws the attention of those hearers in this way by asking the priest a set of questions. John McKay comments, the questions that Haggai asked were ones to which the answers were obvious and already well known to everyone. By posing these questions, common ground was secured from which a more telling application of the current situation could be made. These questions, you'll see, will establish the fact that ritual purity cannot be indefinitely passed on by physical contact, but that ritual defilement, in fact, can be passed on. So the first question posed To Levitical priests in verse 12 from the same tribe of Levi who we saw earlier join Moses on the Lord's side. Haggai asked these priests, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Haggai is questioning the non-transmission of purity first, okay? Holy or consecrated meat would be from one of the offerings such as the sin offering, part of which was given to the priests and thus frequently carried in their robes. Haggai knows the law. He's a prophet. But he knows the ones who are known to know the law best are the Levitical priests. So that's who he consults. So he asks them for a ruling. And in Leviticus 10, verse 10, we're told that these priests are the ones who may distinguish between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. So the holy object, the holy meat, comes in contact with something unholy. It tells us bread, stew, wine, oil, or any other food. It comes in contact with these foods. Will it become unholy? And how do the priests respond to the question of whether indirect contact between a consecrated item and another item makes the item that it touches consecrated? Well, the rest of verse 12, it tells us. The priests answered, and what they say? I said, no. The point Haggai is making here in verse 12 is that by posing this question to the priests, we come to understand in their response that holiness may be transmitted, but that it is limited to direct contact or first degree transmission. Therefore, holiness is not transmittable via indirect contact or second degree transmission. Okay, We've got the consecrated meat. We've got the garment. The garment becomes holy, but the the garment holding the meat then touches another type of food, and and that food, 
by touching the holy meat, it doesn't become holy. You see, Haggai knew that his audience would know that it was a common sight to behold the priests carrying the consecrated meat in the folds of their garments. He knew that they knew that their cloth was automatically made holy since it was wrapped around the sacrificial meat. That's why he asked the question the way that he did. Now tell me, guys, you're the experts, okay, what happens, hypothetically, if the cloth touches some ordinary food? Is that food made holy too? That's essentially what he's asking here. They tell him pretty emphatically, of course not. No, it's not. T.V. Moore plainly states the priest's reply was correct, for although the garment was made holy by the offering it contained, it had no power to transmit that sacredness any further. The transmission of holiness, it stops, and this is what Haggai wanted to get across to the hearers. In Exodus 19, verse 6, we see Israel being set apart by the Lord as holy. But that did not mean that all they did was on that account sacred or even remotely acceptable to God. One writer states bluntly, holy status, and this is easy to remember, holy status requires holy obedience. Holy status requires holy obedience. Even though God's covenant relationship with the Israelites was renewed in their return to the land, That recognition of their holy status, it did not convey automatic approval of all that they did, or in this case, all they had not done in the rebuilding of the temple. So what's Haggai ask next in verse 13? If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? Haggai, fresh off of a ruling in verse 12, he follows up by continuing his line of thought, his argument. Okay, so this this ordinary food cannot be made holy by coming into contact, by touching something that contains holy meat. Okay, but I'm still curious. What if the same ordinary food were to touch someone who's touched a dead body? Does that person's uncleanliness also make the food unclean? Numbers 19 Verse 22, whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. So the priests, again, experts of the law, they said, it shall, having touched the corpse, it shall be unclean. Leviticus 22, verses 4 through 7. Whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a discharge shall not eat, the holy offering, until he is clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has an omission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing that by which he would be made unclean or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food. Because whether direct or indirect, any contact we've seen, any contact between an unclean entity and a a neutral entity, it renders the neutral entity unclean. And I know this is technical, but we have to get down to the nitty and the gritty. You want your HVAC worker to be technical on how to repair your HVAC. If your car engine needs to be fixed, you, you need the mechanic 
to know what he's doing. So it's important that we continue to understand why Haggai is asking these questions. The priest's answer to Haggai maintains that the food is unclean because the unclean person touched it. And it's unclean because the unclean person touched a corpse. And therefore, everything touched afterwards will become unclean. Verse 14 reads, Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. The prophet Haggai uses these two questions to establish the basis for the prophetic declaration regarding the people's status, their standing before God. The first question in verse 12 is the foundation for the second in verse 13. And the second question, it provides the analogy that we just read in verse 14. So is this people, then so is this nation. Before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. He goes back to his old ways, borrowing from the phrase used in chapter 1, verse 2. He calls them now again, this people. And he does this to demonstrate that people who are unholy do not become holy simply by engaging in religious activities. God previously referred to them as this people while they were being disobedient. Now they again are disobeying him, and this caused a gap. There was a void between them and God. Their disobedience had caused that gap. One commentator writes, To work and save space, to rebuild God's house, to rebuild the temple, it does not make the work holy if hearts and motives are wrong. The people, as the priests, helped to show them, were defiled in the Lord's sight. And as a result, everything that they offered on the Lord's altar, they thought they were doing something holy. They thought they were being overly religious. Everything they offered on the Lord's altar was defiled because their hearts weren't right. And therefore, their offerings were unacceptable to God. That meant that because of their defilement, their their sacrifices offered on the Lord's altar were nothing but a gigantic waste of time. Nothing they brought was accepted. Nothing they brought could be accepted until their status was changed. They were a defiled people. And here notice that it's, it's the Lord who's making this formal declaration. This people, this nation... Before me, he says. Man we know looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? At the heart. And he could see into their innermost beings. And what did he see? It wasn't good. He observed a slothful people working half-heartedly in the task to which they were appointed. Rebuilding his house. Rebuilding his temple. Not only that, but they were offering sacrifices upon the altar, sacrifices which were contaminated. What they offer there is unclean. Too much assuming being done by the exiles, assuming their sacrifices would make them holier and secure the protection and the blessing of God for them, 
assuming their work in a holy building would automatically make them holy. We can't ever assume, can we? And what's God tell them? He says, you're wrong. You're wrong and your sacrifices are wrong because they, through you, are defiled. I will not accept them because you are a defiled people. The exiles, though, they believed they were pleasing God through their actions by making sacrifices to him. But what did this, the psalmist say of the Lord? Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. For you do not desire, he says, sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise. The people were unclean. Their inert attitude, it made them unclean. Sure, they worked. But it wasn't done with a clean heart. They lacked zeal in their work. This, the day the Lord has made... This day we're called to let us rejoice and be glad in it. And in their work, they were not glad. It was done because they were told that it needed to be done. And as we've seen throughout our study of this little book, the work that they did was never done with joy. It was never done with gladness. Even if it began that way, it never ended up that way. And so enter Haggai. Their love, their loyalty, their enthusiasm for God's work, it diminished and turned to half-heartedness. It was a chore at that point. They thought, well, maybe if our outward actions appear devout, if we appear devout in God's eyes, we'll be made acceptable. What lazy thinking that pleasing God came through their poor attempts at offering sacrifices. They couldn't obey his command and their works were done in vain. Remember, God knows our hearts. And in effect, he's saying, here, y'all stop. It's of no use. Your hearts aren't pure, and those who build my house must, must have pure hearts. God demands pure actions. He demands pure attitudes. He demands pure motives from his workers, and he will never accept unworthy sacrifices. Michael Bentley comments, what God was saying through Haggai was this. You cannot catch holiness It is God's gift to those who commit themselves completely to him and his service. A cold can be caught, he says, like defilement through a dead body. But health, health is different. Health cannot be caught any more than a sanctified garment can transfer its holiness to anyone who touches it. Another commentator goes so far as to compare the ruined temple being that of a corpse. In the midst of the people which gave lie to Israel being a holy nation. Thus as a result of Haggai's appeal, the exiles were inevitably compelled to think harder. He tells them, consider, think harder, and now carefully consider this day forward in verse 15. Carefully consider from this day forward. Consider how things were. He moves on from unfolding the situation at hand into how to necessarily respond. From this, or from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord. It's here that Haggai refers to the first time the structure was being rebuilt 
as temple rather than house. Up to this point, it's always been a house. And here it's mentioned as a temple. And in the accounts of the construction of Solomon's temple, temple refers to the inner holy area, while house is used for the structure as a whole. Temple can also mean palace. So it's safe to say that Haggai is likely stressing God's position as king of the universe. One whose house should indeed be a palace. Because the people needed reminding of whose palace they were working on. Or not working on. They were commanded to rebuild and they did so. But they did so barely. With unclean hands. With defiled hands. God is using the prophet Haggai to explain to the people that their defiled, bare minimal efforts were not worthy to be engaged in such a sacred task. And this makes sense today, doesn't it? Those who are disobedient to God's clear commands, they have no right to be working on God's temple. Listen to what David says in Psalm 24. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Continuing along, verse 16 tells us, Since those days, when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. And God here saying through the prophet Haggai, you you want to know why the returns on your farm have been so poor? Look at verse 17. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail and all the labors of your hands. It was me, he says. I'm the reason why you guys can produce virtually nothing. He says, make no mistake, I take serious, personally and directly, the terms of my covenant. That's why. These three disasters were part of the curse of the covenant for those who did not carefully keep all the Lord of the covenant required of them. Blight, referring to the scorching effect of the east wind coming in from the desert. It dries up all the plants and shrivels all the grain so that the yield dropped dramatically. Mildew would have led to damp conditions in which fungus thrives. And what do we know about fungus? Plants don't grow. It prevents plants from ripening properly. And if you don't believe me, come see our garden. I can show you plenty of mildew. Hail would have left plants flattened, possibly injuring or killing people and animals. And hail is also associated with God's judgment. The point being that whatever the people tried to grow, their disobedience ensured that the Lord, he was the one who frustrated their endeavors. I imagine their fields looked wonderful, and they did everything right. But God said, you did not turn to me, and therefore, nothing will grow. What the Lord had been doing was designed to make them think about their situation, consider, consider, for them to ask why. Why poor harvest, after poor harvest, after poor harvest... And they never did that. He tells them for for all the thinking that this was mere coincidence. Seriously, this isn't coincidence. 
Again, they knew the law, they had read the Torah, and they knew what was said in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with the sword, with scorching, and with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Like the prophet Amos, Haggai was used by God to remind the people that his words were living, and they always brought about what they said in blessing or in judgment. And so after the prophet Haggai vividly and emphatically points this reality out to them, they can't escape the reality. He made it very clear. In verse 18, he urges them to consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed still in the barn, he asks. As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day, I will bless you. Consider, think carefully, he tells them. He reminds them of their rebuilding work. He refers back to the laying of the foundations of the Lord's temple. He says twice, think carefully about this. Consider. He's shown them that the natural disasters were from him and they no longer can ignore what he's saying to them through them. That if they realize, if only they would, not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly, return to the Lord, that something wonderful would happen. Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. He's saying it's, it's not fourth time's the charm, I promise. There's nothing more you could do about your poor harvest. The figs, the pomegranates, the olives, you farmed it perfectly, and what would you get? You got minuscule results, little to nothing. But how does he follow that? He transitions from fruitless plants. And how does he conclude verse 19? To abundance. From admonishment to encouragement through the promise of obedience and blessing. Because this, friends, is God's character. Having refused for years to to joyfully obey God's commands, to build the temple... And now even barely carrying on that work. The God of infinite grace and mercy is ready to do what? To pour out his blessings on his people. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever, Micah tells us. Because he delights in mercy. Friends, there may be nothing left in the barn. We may have nothing left to fall back on with with all that we have committed to the work of the Lord, advancing his kingdom here on earth. And yet, what does he say? But from this day on, I will bless you. So how, then, do we apply these 19 verses tonight? Our culture... Regards almost any kind of a religion or some religion as as good religion. Even true religion cannot save us through our works. Because we ourselves are fundamentally defiled. The offering of or from defiled hands is itself necessarily defiled. And therefore it cannot and will not be accepted by a holy God. 
A good work or, or even any number of good works cannot and could never make a sinner right with a holy God. We have to understand that. And Haggai takes that point further by explaining us that, on the contrary, a sinner will necessarily corrupt and defile any good work that he turns his hands to. Even when a sinner loves and serves his neighbor, he's what? He's sinning. Because his actions, loving and serving, are being done to the ends of glorifying and justifying himself. And not to serve and glorify Almighty God. And this truth presents us with a profound dilemma, does it not? Just as it did to those first hearers who were presented this reality from the prophet Haggai. And the basic problem is that those first hearers, and you all here this evening, are both defiled by your sin. Everyone has been, has been staying, or stained by the Adam's first sin and thus are born unclean. Parents, you can attest to this, can't you? You can't teach your kids to lie, or you didn't teach your kids to lie. You didn't teach them to covet. You didn't teach them to complain. You didn't teach them to steal. You didn't teach them to be unkind. You didn't teach them to be rude. You didn't teach them to speak foully, did you? It comes naturally to them. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And this means that we desperately and immediately need to get right with God if we are to experience his true blessing and not dwell forever under his curse. Because if what Haggai says about the defiling power of sin is right, if that is true, then any religion that counts on your efforts to please God cannot begin to bridge the void between man and him. I love how Jeremiah puts it. He says, can the the Ethiopian change his skin? Or the leopard its spots? Can the leopard change its spots? Can it just remove them? Then you may also do good who are accustomed to do evil left to ourselves. We can't choose to turn to God any more than a leper can choose to lose its spots. Salvation cannot come through the form of self-help. It cannot come through any sort or form of humanitarian work. Salvation must necessarily come from outside ourselves. From an act of God's free grace, grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. This and only this is what radically cleanses you. Secondly, and we know this, sin is contagious. You must recognize that your life is tainted with sin, which like a virus is contagious. Your good works will not atone for your sinfulness. Only repentance and faith in Christ alone will save you. And lastly, at the heart of the Torah stood the words of the Lord in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. That entire chapter, Leviticus 19, speaks to both. It summarizes ultimately the worship requirements and lifestyle obligations of God's people, theological and practical. We see this blend of practical and theological, too, in Peter's first epistle. And here in Haggai, the gist wasn't just a a meticulous regulation about holy or consecrated meat. That's not the point. But an observation on the holiness of the eternal God and the implications for his people's lives. We don't like being faced with this reality, though, do we? Because it's hard. And our culture is one of having your cake and eating it at the same time. It's the same culture that says you are to fulfill your your best version at all costs. Even if it burns bridges. Even if it requires you to lie. Even if it requires you to cheat or steal. All of which are sin. And Haggai speaking as a mouthpiece of God, he reminds us that before we can enjoy the blessing found in verse 19, 
we must first put our house in order, even if that means less, and it's hard, less personal fulfillment, less thrill-seeking, less worldly fun, less me, 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 me. All of that does not strive, nor does it pursue holiness. It pursues you, not God. Pursuing holiness is what leads to blessing. All else is futile. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, bless your word this evening. Father, use it in our hearts and in our lives. Change us by it, Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name.